Hey everyone, and welcome to the Warrior Monk Podcast. If you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back. If you're a new listener, you're in luck because today's episode is a really good one. I have Dr. Kate Pate. She has a doctorate in neurophysiology, and she's done a lot of great research in the neuroscience field, as well as worked directly with veterans and first responders dealing with post-traumatic stress, and she's very up-to-date and knowledgeable on the subject of psychedelic therapy for post-traumatic stress. My interview rounds out this four-part mini-series that I've done on neuroscience and psychology, and I hope you all have really enjoyed it. Uh, Please, if you have enjoyed this segment and you want me to do more mini-series in the future dealing with specific topics or subject, please shoot me a direct message uh, either on Instagram or Facebook, or you can even email me at warmonkllc at gmail.com. And uh, let me know what you think and what you'd like to see in the future. Now, guys, if you are a returning listener to the podcast, I appreciate your continued support, but I need you to give me a hand, all right? I need you guys to help support this podcast so I can keep it going. I've got some plans in the future, but I need some funds to make it happen. If you guys go to patreon.com, whiskey Mike podcast, that's patreon.com, WM podcast, or just go to Patreon and type in the warrior monk podcast in the search box you'll find the patreon page for the warrior monk podcast now there you can donate and become a patron to the program to the podcast as well as get access to stickers morale patches and t-shirts for the warrior monk podcast even if you can only contribute a couple dollars it does make a difference and helps me continue to keep the lights on keep the microphones powered up and keeps me moving forward with the progress of the podcast to make it better and bring you guys more episodes. Now, before we step into the conversation with Dr. Pate, I do want to put an advisory out that we're going to be talking about veteran mental health and some of the therapies that are currently being developed and are being done in clinical trials with veterans for psychedelic therapy. But nothing in this podcast is being presented as medical advice And I strongly encourage anyone who's listening who thinks that that might be a route for them to get with a practitioner, a psychologist, or therapist to discuss these options before going and trying them themselves. Not to mention that most psychedelic drugs are still in a Schedule 1 class under the FDA, which means that they are illegal substances, which is something else to keep in mind. All right, just have to put that out there to cover the podcast and uh, make sure that everyone has that knowledge before stepping into some of these topics that are extremely important, but also sensitive. Also, finally, before we get into the actual podcast, I just want you to know if you are a veteran in need or if you know a veteran in need, they're struggling with mental health and they're having thoughts about self-harm or harm of others, they can call 1-800-800. 273-8255. That's the Veteran Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255. Or they can even text at 838-255 to get help from someone, talk to someone right now. It is important that the veteran community stays close and help support each other to help try and end veteran suicide. All right, thank you guys so much for your attention, and we'll continue on with the conversation with Dr. Kate Pate. All right. On this episode of the Warrior Monk Podcast, I have a doctorate of uh, neurophysiology, Dr. Kate Pate. Welcome to the Warrior Monk Podcast. We've been trying to make this happen for a while, and I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, for inviting me. I, I, yeah, it's been it's been a long time coming, but I'm, fi- I'm glad we're finally able to sit down and, and do this. And I think it's only allowed us to kind of accumulate more information and wisdom and experience. So, you know, the conversation will be richer now than, you know, maybe a year ago. So. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And I've I've actually had that happen with a couple recent podcast episodes of kind of, this seems like when it's supposed to be the right time, it will happen. So uh, it happens for a reason. Um, So for anyone who doesn't really kind of catch big words, neurophysiology, uh, that's that's a big (laughs) word. So can you, can you break down a little bit of what your kind of background education is in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of people confuse it. They see the neuro and then the PHY part, and they're just like neuropsychology or, you know, neuro, Mm -hmm. it's some sort of psychology thing. And it's, you know, you just break it down into the two components, the neuro part, which is anything to do with neuroscience and the brain. And then the physiology part, which is 
um, you know, body systems and uh, normal functioning in the body. And so the study of neurophysiology is really looking at the brain, the neuroscience control of physiology and that interaction, the brain body interaction. So um, it's much more uh, detail oriented, like science, like nitty gritty science oriented than like traditional psychology fields. So mm-hmm. we don't really get into um, the uh, theory of psychology or concepts of mental health as much as we do um, sort of like looking at more like disease models in the body. And certainly mental health and physical health are tightly intertwined, which is where I started to kind of branch out in my own training to look at more of like how consciousness plays a role in neurophysiology and mental health and, and the, the brain body uh, subjective experience and, and um, how all of that is, is intertwined and interrelated and one influences the other. And so I kind of looked at, you know, I did look at the uh, respiratory system primarily in my training. So I did mm-hmm. a lot of brain breath body um, uh, research, and I was really interested in understanding how, um, you know, our perception of breathing can influence our mental health and our physical health and sort of that whole circuitry involved. Um, so that was a lot of what I did when I was a PhD student and doctoral student. And from there, I kind of branched out, you know, I've always been fascinated by that brain body connection and the subjective experience and how all that plays a role in overall health and the mental physical health side and how, how they're, um, you know, intertwined and influence each other. So that was my PhD work. And then I went on from there and I studied a ton of different things over the years. So that's a whole other trajectory, (laughs) which I can go into if you're, if you want me to describe more of the background, but neurophysiology is really just like the neuroscience of um, you know, body, body functioning. Yeah. I mean, you're welcome to go and and to kind of tell us as much about yourself as, as you want. But, uh, I know one of the, one of the questions that I had and was curious about is kind of how you've gotten down this, this path of studying and working with those who have been affected by trauma and specifically combat trauma, which affects so many, so many veterans, especially people from the special operations, uh, career fields. So how kind of what led you down that path and where have you gone with that journey of studying it and working with, with guys and girls from that aspect? Yeah. So, um, it's a, you know, this, this is kind of a, I think maybe a good way to highlight for people listening who are maybe stuck in a career path that they're not sure is the right fit. You know, my, my path is definitely one of reinvention. So Mm -hmm. anyone listening, like you have the ability to make your career, whatever you want it, want it to be and pursue what interests you. And you'll find, you'll find a way to, to make that work for a career path. But for me, you know, from my, my graduate work moved into a postdoc and, uh, during my postdoc, I was studying everything from, you know, my, my primary interest at that point was more traumatic brain injury. I wanted to do, you know, study of neurophysiology in, a, in the context of neurotrauma. So mm-hmm. in traumatic brain injury, what's, ex- what exactly is happening? Uh, where are the points along the way that we can inter- intervene to, um, you know, confer protection and have better outcomes. And so that was something that really drove me just from a pure scientific interest but then being, you know, a mountain biker and a skier and snowboarder and um, mountain athlete, it was, you know, everybody that I knew had concussions and traumatic brain injuries over the years. Sure. Um, and I, at the time, you know, my, I had two brothers that served in the military and I had some friends in the military, but it was a pretty small group of people. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of um, firsthand. I mean, I was aware of the research behind traumatic brain injury in the military environment, but I hadn't heard as many firsthand stories at that point. And so, although I was interested in it, it was really more of a scientific interest. And then it became personal for, you know, uh, um, athletic reasons. Um, I did end up meeting more people over time in the military who, who did deal with the consequences of that, but I studied neurotrauma. I studied cancer and radiation biology and arthritis and lung infection and all these, you know, various different things. And, um, you know, I kind of, kind of got burnt out on research, to be honest, it was like a really intense career path and high stress for very long. And, um, it wasn't exactly the right fit for me. I'm, I'm a people person and being in a lab was, was not, uh, the most interesting thing for me. I relate to that so much because that's (laughs) part of the reason my career took a a different path. I was, I got my, my my degree done and worked in biotech as basically a lab tech for a year. So, you know, really well. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, 
I, I was, it was great stuff. I was, I was more on the immunology side. I was working mm-hmm. for a vaccine research company, but after a year of doing it, I was like, uh, I, you know, I wasn't going to have career options unless I went back to school for a master's or a PhD and like mm-hmm. wanted to travel the world that called adventure and stuff and wanted to serve. So yeah. the military seemed like the best bet, but I definitely understand that what you connect with what you're saying about being a people person. It's like, you can only get so sucked into the microcosm of research before you almost get you, you kind of get lost to it and you kind of need to reconnect and see where, how it fits in and kind of look almost like bigger picture type stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that was exactly where I was at. And so I was kind of looking for another opportunity. Uh, I was looking to teach actually, I used to teach yeah. in graduate school and I really, really loved teaching. And so I was trying to find opportunities for that and actually found really great opportunity at one of the medical schools in Colorado and um, became a professor uh, of, of physiology there and taught first and second year medical students. Um, and then I became the director of research there because it was primarily an academic unit that I was in. And so they didn't have a lot of like hardcore researchers, like the background that I came from. They were really people with PhDs who focused only on teaching for the most mm-hmm. part. And so they wanted to start a new research program and they kind of tapped me to, to lead that, which was great. It was a cool experience. I learned a lot, but that ended up leading to a connection through one of my colleagues um, to a small business in a different town in Colorado. Uh, they were an engineering firm and uh, wrote grants to the you know to try to submit proposals and get funding from the Department of Defense to build like satellites and um, you know communication uh, instruments and things like that that would. Uh, aid. Oh, there's my dog. <laughs> that would aid in um, uh, any, you know, any kind of military operations in a remote, right. remote area. Um, so they, they were working on all that, and they actually ended up getting a grant. They submitted on a whim a proposal on a military medical topic, and um, for it was actually for eye trauma. Mm-hmm. And they just had this really, they had access to this product, and they were like, hey, we think this could work. So they got funding on that, um, and then they were like, shit. Uh, none of us are physiologists. We don't know what we're doing. We need, we need help. (laughs) So they had a connection at the medical school. They tapped me and um, you know, the person at the medical school who was related to one of them was like, Hey, can you help this company? And long story short, um, they eventually recruited me to come work for them to develop a new combat casualty care program at this uh, company. And um, you know, I did that for a few years trying to grow grow that part of the company. And it kind of dawned on me at one point, a few years down the road that it really needed to, to be its own thing. It wasn't ever going to really grow inside this organization. So my business partner and I spun out a company and um, took the grants with us. And we've been kind of working on that ever since um, to try to create new medical products for combat trauma. So any kind of, you know, emergency medicine, like we're, we're really targeting prolonged field care. So the, mm-hmm. you know, really austere remote environments, what can we do to create better products that people can use to stabilize somebody for, you know, three days, um, through all of that work. So I had been in that space since 2015, working in the military medical space. And since 2015, I crossed paths, of course, just given the work, um, with so many people who were active duty, so many people who are from the veteran community and actually a ton of people from the first responder community as well. And what I was noticing is, although we all geeked out on trauma medicine, which was fun and I love it, um, I was noticing that there was a much uh, bigger problem in this community that was kind of going unaddressed and, and really not talked about as, you know, in the way that I would expect it to be, given how big of a problem it was, which was the mental health component of, mm-hmm. um, in, well, in the mental health aspect in these communities. And people were not okay. And the tools that they were being given to take care of themselves were, you know, locked 10, 15 prescriptions and maybe some psychotherapy. Um, and people seemed to be getting worse and there weren't, you know, in in the public domain, there really weren't a lot of options that were well-known for people for alternative means to, to heal. And, um, I became really interested in understanding what was going on with my friends and seeing if there were ways that I could leverage my neuroscience background to help them. So I just kind of dug in a little bit and started trying to understand the mental health literature and, um, you know, see what, what was out there Mm -hmm. and people kind of, you know, through my network just started reaching out like, Hey, Kate, you know, I've had whatever X number of TBIs. I'm not okay. I don't, you know, this is what I've been doing. Do you know of anything else that I, I can try? 
So I started digging into all this stuff. And at the time, you know, parallel to that, I was going through my own journey and over year, over the years learned to cope with, um, the uncontrollable stress and the chaos of life and, you know, the various forms of challenge and, you know, difficult experiences that happen to all of us in really healthy ways. I had good, good outlets to some degree, of course, like physical activity and being right. outside of nature, living in Colorado, those were things that were accessible to me. And I used a lot to cope, but I also severely abused alcohol at times and um, also struggled with a pretty severe eating disorder as another mm-hmm. coping strategy. And so right. I was certainly holding it together and, you know, from the outside looking in, you would, you would never know. Um, you know, we, I think we all with those types of, uh, addictions and, and vices, we learn to hide it well and still be highly functioning for sure, right. but it's destroying us internally. And I know mm-hmm. a lot of people in the military can relate. A lot of people in the special operations community can relate, you know, it's, you're, you're not okay, but you're okay enough to get your job done and to hold it together externally, you know, in an outward facing capacity, but internally you're, you're a mess. And I was going through that in my own life. And I was seeing all these parallels with my friends and I'm like, man, you know, I haven't been through what you've been through at all. We're totally different people, different life experiences, but like the suffering is the same. And there's like really intense suffering going on in this community or all these communities. And I feel my own journey is paralleling that. And so I was curious around some of this stuff for my own, my own healing. And at the time I had crossed paths with a friend who had gone on a retreat to um, Costa Rica with an organization called Heroic Hearts Project. And I hadn't heard of the organization before. And at the time I hadn't heard of ayahuasca at, at, you know, at at all and um, didn't know what it was. And so I was really curious around it. Uh, this, the neuroscience nerd in me took over and I started to research all this stuff. Yeah. And, um, I found so much more research around ayahuasca and psychedelic medicines in general than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. And the evidence was overwhelmingly positive for addressing a lot of mental, severe mental health issues. And, um, the fact that there was an organization out there that was trying to fund healing of veterans through these means was just incredible to me. And so I reached out to them, tried to see if I could get involved and help, help them in any way. Um, and over time became the director of research for heroic hearts project, which has been a really, really cool journey. Um, but also, you know, through this whole process, um, I, I was able to find my own path to healing through plant medicines, through ayahuasca in particular. And I was able to see and witness the healing of so many people in the community, especially in the veteran community, um, as they went through their own journeys and their own process with it. So that then led to me really being just so incredibly passionate about trying to help people find the right path for healing for themselves that may include plant medicines, but you know, maybe not, it's totally, it's totally okay. If that's psychedelics are not your thing. Um, they're not for everybody, but they are a powerful tool. And just to see that there are so many people out there struggling and and didn't even know where to go for help or didn't know what tools were available to them um, really motivated me to try to be more vocal in these spaces about what's out there. So that kind of led to me developing a coaching practice to work with people one-on-one to try to um, help develop a plan of action for them. Like, Hey, what are your goals? Where are you at? How do you feel? Let's mm-hmm. talk about these things. Let's talk about what we know could potentially address all of that. Let's come up with a plan together. And then, you know, you go forth and, and own that um, and own that path to healing. So that is a very, very long story about how I ended up getting to this place. But I mean, it was, you know, it's a, a lot of twists and turns and I just followed my passion and I followed sort of the, uh, the need or the call that was being presented. So yeah. um, I feel very lucky and very uh, fortunate to be able to do what I love. So that's how I ended up here. <laughs> that's awesome. No, thank you so much for sharing some of, of your history uh, and kind of how you've gone down this, this path. And a, c- a couple of things I just want to like, you know, touch on and, and maybe ha- more comment on is And like one, one thing is the, the alcohol thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've, I have a family who's, who's been affected by alcoholism there are many, many families uh, that have been affected by it. Uh, and that in itself can be a source of, of trauma, right? Growing up in a yeah. household that, you know, where 
and I, I joke, I, I joke with people and, you know, making light of, of horrific situations as part of military humor. Um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you know, in, in the military, the, the culture of drinking is very much accepted, uh, if not supported. Of course, we all get asked, you know, when we go in for our annual, you know, medical checkups, how many times a week are you drinking and blah, blah, blah. blah. But, you know, every single, every single time it's part of the ceremony in the culture, every single time somebody's going to PCS and change duty stations and they're going to leave, what do you do? We go drink. Anybody, any, anytime somebody gets a promotion, what do you do? You drink. And anytime somebody comes back from deployment, drink. Every time somebody's going to leave on a deployment, you drink. So like very much yeah. that, that culture of like, you know, every time something good or bad or bad happens, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's like a, you know, enjoy alcohol together, which don't get me wrong. I have great memories of, of, you know, having times with my brothers and sisters over a couple beers and, and responsibly enjoying mm-hmm. it, but it, it does start to breed conditions for abuse. Right. Uh, yeah. it's, it's actually absolutely, um, a piece of it. And, you know, me with my background being in molecular biology, I don't look at things as being good drug, bad drug, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's part of our, I guess, our culture and, and the history of, of what, what, go, what's gone on, especially, you know, during the, the hippie, the hippie era in the sixties <laughs> and stuff like that. And, you know, getting, you know, basically banning psychedelics, you know, from a legal standpoint, because of how much counterculture they're breeding. And it wasn't, you know, in plan with the, 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 you know, military and uh, political leaders that were in charge at the time, if you mm-hmm. really study the history of it, but, you know, saying that you can get intoxicated with alcohol perfectly fine. But if you, you know, go to an ayahuasca ceremony. So if anybody who's not listening to just like, what is ayahuasca? It's a, you know, a traditional uh, South American, uh, which was, I guess, I've, I've actually found or figured out by the native Americans of mixing these two different plants together that creates a intense psychedelic experience, doing something like that for a healing ceremony, or try to pass over some, or deal with some, some traumatic events in your life. Um, that's not acceptable, but, you know, mm-hmm. you know, dealing, dealing with it through alcohol or, you know, that kind of thing is, is so I'm crazy. not saying it's okay, but it's like, it's not, it's not illegal. Um, right. So yeah, it's yeah, really and the, the health outcomes from both, or the health benefits, or you know, like harms, are so different, and it's so crazy that alcohol is acceptable, and yet these other like psychedelic medicines, which actually have a lot of upside and and you know less downside health wise, yeah. um, are demonized. And yeah, it's just an interesting thing when we think about it. And you're absolutely right; it's totally cultural, and uh, and I you know I, I think that with anything with any of these like to kind of talk about your view on drugs with anything like intention is, is at the heart of it. So if you Mm -hmm. intentionally take something, um, for health reasons or for benefit, or you have conscious awareness around what you're doing when you're taking the substance, it doesn't have to be a, it's like, it can be a really positive thing. You know, alcohol can be a really positive thing for people and it it becomes a problem when it starts to cause issues in your life, you Mm -hmm. know, when it starts to interrupt, whether it's physical health and you're getting like really negative health uh, effects from it, or if it's disrupting your relationships with people or your ability to do your job, those are the times when all of a sudden now this thing that was enjoyable is, is a problem. So, you know, it doesn't just, you know, inherently alcohol doesn't have to be a problem. It can be really enjoyable. It can lead to a lot of positive for people. It just comes down to the use and the intention. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the podcast, because I have had Jesse from Her Hearts Project on, uh, I guess it's over, been over a year ago now. And mm-hmm. uh, I love what him and his team are doing. I think it's really fantastic what they're doing for the veteran community. But um, I think it's really important to have someone like you that has, uh, you know, we'll, for the for the, we'll use the, the subject matter expert title that we use uh, in the military, I know to kind of go into more of the nitty gritty of, of what's kind of going on, um, you know, and what you're doing, you know, with coaching people is you're extremely informed and, you know, to talk about the, the, the culture of psychedelics, um, you know, there's a lot of woo woo, um, hippie kind of mentality because of, you know, what, what was there, uh, during, during the sixties kind of culture and, you know, looking at it from the more scientific perspective, I think helps people, I guess, have better understanding and talking about that intention piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think you talked about it just briefly before we got started with the recording here, but talking about, you know, things, I guess, kind of defining terms and, and looking at things of whether it's a ritual, looking at it as a habit or it like actual addiction, you know, and, and even 
even stuff like the use of of things like ayahuasca and i know there's the organizations like maps are, are doing the mdma studies for post-traumatic stress and I, I think they're trying to get psilocybin ones you know magic mushrooms approved uh, mm -hmm. for post-traumatic stress clinical trials now too um but you know it's it's not it's not like a one-size-fits-all or it's like if you if you do if you if you drink some ayahuasca, you're going to be cured of your PTSD, yeah. right? It's much more complex than that. And it even yeah. itself can be, you know, an escapism, right? That's what we kind of talked about previously. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, definitely. It's, um, it's, it's a, it can be a slippery slope for people who have, um, a tendency to want to escape reality. And I think that's many of us <laughs> yeah, a lot, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just sort of like a human behavior thing. Uh, we all do it. it just depends on what you do it with. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Especially in, in Western societies where we weren't given the tools to sit with discomfort. So we're really excellent at um, physical discomfort and putting ourselves through the most you know, heinous workouts and trials and tests and, you know, especially military, it's, you know, you, you go through all of these things that push you to your limit, your mm -hmm. physical limit and, and mental, you know, I mean, it's, there's a lot of mental as well, but when it comes to emotional discomfort, we are babies. We are just so incapable, many of us so incapable of um, really having a, a sense of fortitude or resilience in that capacity. And it's not our fault. I mean, we grew up in a time where there were no tools for that. It's right. just, you know, like it's, it's like, Hey, suck it up, keep a lid on it, be stoic, you know, but that that's unfortunately that doesn't work with emotions. You know, you, if you don't deal with it, it's going to come back to bite you. I, I was talking to friends about this recently, but I was saying that, you know, we compartmentalize really well in the emotional sense and we're not ready to deal with stuff. And so we put all of this stuff in boxes up on a shelf. And at some point yeah. that shelf doesn't have any more room. And what happens when you try to pile more boxes on it? Well, some of them fall off and bust open when they hit the floor, like releasing this stuff when you're not ready to deal with it, you know, and it comes out of nowhere sometimes. And I work with clients who are like, man, I'm literally just driving and no, no, like real thought going on, just sort of zoning out and I'll just start crying. And I'm like, yes, these are the unlived emotional experiences that we all have that we mm -hmm. tried to push away. And I'm telling you, like, unless you deal with this stuff, it's going to, you're going to be forced to deal with it later. And so learning how to deal with the emotional stuff is really important for all of us to, to, to figure out, you know, it looks different for everyone. How do you deal with that? Uh, so it's a slightly different, different path for every person. But the reason we try to escape is that we don't, we don't want to feel that stuff. You mm -hmm. know, we don't want to feel what's coming up because we don't have the tools and we're very aware that we don't have the tools. And so it's like, nope too much. I'm overwhelmed. Can't deal with this right now. I'm either going to, you know, if I can't put it on a box, I'm going to try to numb myself or escape my own body in some way. Right. And that's where alcohol is like a sledgehammer. It's super effective uh, to a point. And then, you know, you feel oftentimes you feel worse and afterwards, but you know, alcohol is a good escape as are many other drugs, as are certain behaviors like violence or, you know, sex addictions, other types of addictions. My eating disorder was a super powerful escape for me to be able to avoid feeling stuff. So in that same way, um, sometimes people can move from, you know, something that is, I guess, has a bad connotation, right? Like, a. Uh, some sort of addiction to a substance or behavior that has like a bad connotation thanks to society. Um, and instead they cure themselves of that through, through psychedelics, but then psychedelics have become a crutch. And now that person is using psychedelics as an escape. And right. when things come up, like, you know, I've, I've heard this from friends of mine who, you know, when they're starting to feel depressed, they'll go ahead and start taking mushrooms and their assumption is that if, if I'm depressed, um, something's wrong, that's not mm -hmm. normal. And I don't want to feel that. And it's like, Hey man, we're human beings and we are supposed to feel all of the stuff, like all the entire range of emotions. And there are going to be days when, yeah, we, we are feeling down and sometimes it's, a, it's days in a row and it's not just a couple hours, but it's like a period of time that we're maybe in a funk and that's okay. Like that that doesn't mean something's wrong and it doesn't mean we have to go fix it and run to something to address it. It's like, you know, maybe the work is to just sit with what is and try and figure out why you're feeling that way. And sometimes right. there's no answer. It's just, that's, that's how you're feeling. So I try to caution people around this stuff because I think that their psychedelics in general are super powerful tools, but if you don't have like any kind of awareness around it, around your use, 
you can easily slip into a pattern of um, running to it to just to function or to doing more avoidance. And in that way, although it may not be like a physiological addiction, it certainly becomes a psychological addiction. And as, as we were talking earlier, I really feel strongly about this. If we don't have conscious awareness of what we're doing, what we're consuming, what we're putting in our body, then we are easily manipulated and we're a slave to something. And that is really, really important for people to know because um, there are a lot of ways that I think we're moving through the world in an unconscious capacity where we are easily manipulated and we aren't in control and we have mm-hmm. become a slave to something. And that's not being free, you know, that's it's really not. Um, so I say that as like a cautionary tale that psychedelics can turn into you know, uh, something that people abuse just as easily as alcohol. If you're not, if you're not careful. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm a firm believer too in, in fasting. Uh, and I don't just mean that necessarily like, you know, intermittent fasting is all the, the rage right now from, mm-hmm. you know, anybody from who's trying to lose weight to the anti-aging and autoph- autophagy effects and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not just talking about food, but like fasting from, you know, certain things in your life too, right? Oh like, yeah. For, for example, this month I, I did sober October uh, and not just from booze, uh, caffeine as well, just because, you know, c- caffeine is a psychoactive chemical that we abuse like crazy. It's another one of those, like, it's, a, oh my it's, gosh, yeah. it's a, it's culturally accepted drug versus, uh, you know, one that's on the naughty list. But I mean, you see it, how many people like li- are lined up with their cars around Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts in the morning be like, I can't function unless I get my fix. Mm-hmm. And it's even physically addictive in a way where people go with through withdrawal and get headaches and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. If you're, if you're not, and I'll, I will admit to you that I, I, I am addicted to caffeine, caffeine. And I had, I had a couple of cheat days this, this, uh, this month, you know, I did not have a completely caffeine free month, but, um, you know, that time to take away from some, from something like that and see how it's affecting your life mm-hmm. and kind of renew that relationship with it. When you walk back to it, it kind of gives you a new respect for the thing yeah. and what it what it can contribute to your life in a positive in a positive way mm-hmm. um and i think i mean i'm i'm assuming people can kind of have that relationship with some of these therapeutic type things uh, as well you know if it's if it's like you said if it's just something you're tapping all the time because you know you're you're feeling depressed or or you know there's there's something that's bothering you it's it's like well you know are are we are we looking at causation or correlation type type of mentality right like a, why are, mm-hmm. let's look at the root cause of where the depression is coming from and not just looking for an easy button i guess which unfortunately is very common in our american society right just give me the mm-hmm. pill uh don't don't go through the suffering don't go through the, the effort to uh yeah. to kind of change things whether they be behavior or anything like that but mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah. I, I i appreciate your your perspective on it too and i do think i've heard other people who've been in the this this world to uh people like ben Grant, greenfield uh, and tim ferris talk about you know they're, they're very pro the you know the use of psychedelics whether they be for religious and spiritual mental health reasons or you know uh the therapeutic uh you know more even on the straight scientific side but uh, yeah, they they're not they're not a cure all. They they can they can be just like any drug. They can be abused as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you make some really good points around the um, uh, with like taking a break from various things in life because mm-hmm. you know it really it really is eye opening when you step back and because I had to do um, for this recent trip down to Peru that I did. I did a um, ten day a nine day dieta down there. And that was pretty strict. So, um, you know, prior, it was like three weeks prior and then the, you know, two, roughly two weeks while I was down in Peru. And then a month afterwards where it's like no caffeine, no alcohol, no red meat, no dairy, no sugar, no spice, no sex, no, no, any of that stuff. Like it's just, it's a lot. It's a a lot. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard, but it's, it really opened my eyes, especially to the caffeine, because when I mm-hmm. stopped all of that stuff, I felt for a week, like I was dying. <laughs> like I was like, man, between, um, you know, the caffeine and the sugar and even alcohol, which I have a very good relationship with now, and it's not abused still, you know, I mean, if you have it a couple times a week and then all of a sudden you, you don't, and you're doing it at the same time, you're cutting everything else out. You really do feel awful. <laughs> it's not yeah, fun. Yeah. Um, but it was like, wow, I am totally like not okay without that stuff. And now I feel great, but it, it's taken a lot, you know, a long time to do, to do that. Um, 
and it definitely can become, yeah, it can become a, um, a crutch for, for people, you know, in, in the same way that anything else can. So yeah, it's, it's good to, to take a break from that. Even honestly, even like social media and stuff, the things yeah. that we consume, which is affecting your brain basis. chemistry a lot yes. too. I mean, the, the, the little dopamine button. <laughs> oh my God. Well, and the thing that people don't realize is that if you're an, an addict to something and I think we're all addicted to technology in some way, mm-hmm. shape or form these days, anyone who's on social media certainly is, um, whether you think you are or not, you probably yeah. are. Um, it, it it starts to set up uh, that <laughs> that neurochemical process of you know dopamine withdrawal when you're not mm-hmm. using the thing, and then that pushes us towards this like this craving of mm-hmm. wanting to get a dopamine hit, and so we do that. And and this circuitry affects. It's not just like an an addiction that affects only that behavior. This changes our brain in ways that actually change our prefrontal cortex in a, in a way that makes us more impulsive, period. It doesn't mean you're more impulsive with that behavior or that drug or whatever. I mean, certainly that's true, but it makes us more impulsive, period. So now all of a sudden, you know, we, we have a harder time controlling ourselves or we make snap decisions when we should really be deliberating on it. And, you know, it really influences other aspects of our life. And yeah. that that's something that people need to bring, you know, I, I think is important for them to understand about addiction in general, because maybe your only addiction is to your phone, but that's affecting the rest of your brain. So, um, you know, I say that just to, again, it's like, I don't want to be like this, <laughs> like really like negative um, perspective on all of these things, but I say it as cautionary tales to, to just like, I want to shake people sometimes because I know, I know how my life has changed as I've developed some awareness around all of these things. And certainly I have my own hangups and like any, any human being, but I've just become so much more aware and I just try to encourage other people to bring some awareness to their actions too. And when you do clear all that stuff out and you get that space to really sit with yourself and to sit with what, what is like, then you can start to really see what's going on for you. And you're like, wow, I didn't realize that, you know, I was really sad all these years because of, you know, this thing or, you know, all this anger like is actually like, unresolved sadness from something else or, you know, like there's just information there. And I just, I encourage people to be curious about that stuff instead of like scared of it. Like, I don't want to feel it. I don't want to feel that. I need right. to go distract myself. It's like, what happens if you just get curious and, and you mm-hmm. start asking questions? Like, what, what is this? You know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's been part of my process with studying neuroscience a little bit. Like I said, my, my previous career was more on the immunology side and mm-hmm. I've always been kind of curious about the neuroscience thing, but lately people like you, uh, people like uh, Dr. Huberman. Um, uh, I mean, there's just, there's so much easier, I should say easier access to this kind of yeah. stuff. I mean, I, sometimes I listen to to Dr. Huberman's podcast and it's like, man, if I wouldn't be getting this material unless I was sitting in his lecture hall yeah, at Stanford. His podcast is so good. Yeah. And he's, and he's actually talked a lot about this recently. And I, I have felt recently over the past couple of years that I've developed more of an ADD type symptoms, not that I have any right to self-diagnose, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, over the past couple of years, and I've kind of like blamed it on the military culture of just like, you know, <laughs> constantly go, go, go. And like, you know, like that, but I think definitely the, the technology use, I agree with you has a big piece of it. I mean, I, you, I'm not just, this is science, right? Like it's, it is really true that the use of the, of the phones uh, has trained our brains to have, to, to not be able to like, just concentrate. We don't have any boredom time, which kind of affects our creativity from a level too, right? Because anytime, mm-hmm. and you could just walk into a waiting room at a, at a doctor's office or a dentist office and what's everybody doing while they're sitting there? They're tinkering on, on the phones. phones. Nobody's talking yeah. to each other. You know, yeah. we're, all, we're all six feet apart anyway. So like we're all, <laughs> yeah, we're, all we're all physically <laughs> and mentally now getting kind of more isolated into our little bubble, which is going to be worse now that Facebook is starting the metaverse or whatever they're deciding to rebrand so their, uh, their life as. It, it's, it's, it's scary. I mean, I, I love this stuff because it's, you know, this is awesome. You and I are having a Zoom conversation from across the country. Totally. And, borderline real time and talking about really cool stuff about the brain, uh, which we couldn't do without this stuff. But at the same time, it's a dual edged sword and, you know, it's doing, it's doing all this funny stuff with our, our quote unquote monkey brains, which, Mm -hmm. you know, as, as tough and advanced and and smart as we think we are, we still do fall back on a lot of this basic brain chemistry and, and, and this kind of behavioral type stuff. That's borderline animalistic at the end of the day. Right. 
primal drives. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I want to talk about like the whole brain science piece of it too. I do want to kind of step back to the, the psychedelics piece and can you break down a little bit about kind of what goes on with stuff like ayahuasca or MDMA and, and what some of the science is showing and why, why is this, you know, this type of medicine, this type of, uh, you know, brain chemistry, why is it showing to be kind of so good for people that are, that are suffering from, and we're talking about defining terms here, but who have, you know, post-traumatic stress who, who have, you know, traumatic memories that they've kind of, uh, put up on the shelf as to use the analogy that you've, that you've, uh, so elegantly put out there, what, what kind of is going on in the brain and why is this help versus the traditional, you know, going to a, a psychotherapist or, or taking the SSRIs or something like that? Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot to this question. Um, one way that, um, that it seems to work. <clears throat> so a lot of these psychedelics work. So the classic psychedelics are the serotonergic psychedelics and they work on the serotonin system, which many people have probably heard of serotonin and dopamine. Um, you know, the feel good chemicals of the brain in, mm-hmm. involved in motivation and drive and, and pleasure and contentment. And um, they definitely, uh, the serotonergic psychedelics definitely impact the serotonin system in the brain. And they, they often you know, they're referred to as serotonin agonists, which basically means that they kind of look like molecularly parts of them look like the serotonin molecule that interacts with serotonin receptors. And so in some ways they can influence the serotonin system by mimicking a serotonin molecule. Um, The interesting thing though, is that, you know, serotonin in the body has been uh, traditionally associated with inflammation So if you have a serotonin dump in certain parts, um, in certain regions, you know, typically that's been associated with inflammation. And what seems to be going on with the psychedelics is that, and this is ongoing research, so it's not definitive, but it seems like the serotonergic psychedelics are actually promoting an anti-inflammatory, leading to anti-inflammatory mechanisms within cells that Mm -hmm. seems to promote a more anti-inflammatory profile. Uh, if you extrapolate that to the whole body, it would be like an anti-inflammatory profile in the body, including the brain, including the gut, including, you know, other things that are affected by serotonin, um, which is actually really cool. And nobody really understands this at this point. I'm sure, I'm sure there are researchers out there who are like getting to that point and, um, and getting close. There are many people who are, are really interested in this right now and studying it. So that's something that's really mm. compelling about the difference. So they, they do mimic serotonin, but they also hopefully, you know, we find out that it's true that they promote an anti-inflammatory state. And the reason that that is important is that it's very well known and it's been well established that inflammation directly and negatively impacts mental health and mm-hmm. physical health. Right. It's tight. They're both tightly intertwined. There have been many studies on this where, um, especially in you know, animal studies, where looking at um, how an inflammatory um, state in the body caused by an injection of an inflammatory molecule in the blood, for example, can lead to uh, anxiety-like behaviors and depressive-like behaviors in, in animals. And that's mm. just changing inflammation. You know, it's right. not like it's doing anything else, but that's, that's a huge, that's a huge deal. Um, and looking at how to combat inflammation can also promote positive mental health. So I think on some level, psychedelics may be doing something with inflammation that can lead to overall boosts in health. And obviously because their impact on serotonin, it can, it can lead to overall mood changes that are maybe more positive. Um, beyond that, there's the very subjective real experience of psychedelics. So a lot of times people talk, try to, um, uh, talk about something like post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, as like something where people need to go back and revisit the trauma and repackage it in a way where, where the nervous system is sort of decoupled from the memory and you're not stuck in a place where your foot is on the gas pedal and your sympathetic nervous system is in overdrive all the time. And although that's true, that is what needs to happen. um, Talking is not going to do it. Um, Mm. The, with trauma, you know, the trauma doesn't happen in our mind. It happens in our bodies. Like we Mm -hmm. are physical beings, sensory beings, and the trauma that happens to us, sure, our minds are online and we perceive it. We're digesting it with our mind, but our body is what's physically absorbing this traumatic thing that's happening. And so if we don't use the body in the recovery process, 
we only get halfway there. And the cool thing about psychedelics is that it is a totally experiential process, like mind, body, everything, spirit, it's all combined in the experience that, that we're having. Mm-hmm. And that is really powerful for reprocessing trauma. And some of these, like MDMA in particular, it's been shown can uh, mitigate activity in the amygdala, which is sort of the center that's involved in fear responses. Yeah. So for somebody on uh, MDMA and why MDMA is now in you know, phase three clinical trials for PTSD is that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy essentially can shut down those fear responses of the brain, or maybe just bl- it doesn't shut them down, but just kind of blunt Bless them a little bit. Yeah. Um, and allows people to access these memories that were traumatic and reconsolidate or basically like reprocess them in a way where the nervous system and the fear response and the stress response is no longer tightly associated. So that way it becomes a memory that is not emotionally charged for somebody. And it becomes a thing that happened in the past and it's completed in the past and it's, it's done in the past. And so now in the present moment, it's something that we don't have to worry about anymore because it's been completed and it's done and that there's no more stress reactivity. So that yeah. is a really powerful way um, that psychedelics can help with that processing of something like PTSD, where it really um, helps us to not be so fearful when, when we're reprocessing that memory. And then the other, the other way too, that I think that these substances can be really powerful is just the overall psychological effects that we have where, you know, we have such profound insights into, um, into our lives, into our, into many things that kind of hold us back and keep us trapped into ways that we kind of influence our own suffering. And that can be extremely healing. And, um, and then, and finally, the the way that I think many people have probably heard it described, and Michael Pollan did a good job of this in his book, um, How to Change Your Mind, is that, you know, with, with time and with patterns, especially something like PTSD, where a memory is reactivated and that neural pathway gets ingrained in our brains and um, becomes stronger and stronger, it's like creating a rut, you know, in the dirt with our bike, bike tires. And over time, the more things are, whether it's a habit uh, an addiction or a memory, those neural pathways continue to get stronger and stronger. And that rut, if you will, gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And then when we try to do something different, we want to want to ride on a different path, our tires are stuck in the rut and we actually can't choose something different other than that behavior that we've always done or that memory we've always accessed. And the cool thing about psychedelics is it seems to sort of smooth out all these ruts and increase interconnectivity in the brain at a global scale to allow us to have the freedom to make new choices and not be forced into that rut anymore. And this is super important for people to really, really take to heart because you essentially have been given a gift when you do psychedelics, you've been given a gift now to make better choices. So you come out of these experiences and you have this global connectivity and these ruts have been smoothed out to a degree Now it's easier for us to say, instead of reaching for the bottle, I'm going to go for a run. Mm -hmm. Or instead of thinking about that really unhelpful memory or that really unhelpful thought, I'm going to choose positivity or I'm going to choose um, realness or I'm going to choose something else. And so it gives us that gift to make better choices. And then those positive habits can become more ingrained over time. And then that's a good thing. So for all of those reasons, I think that they, they have the potential to be really helpful for healing in a variety of different ways. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's a, a great, great answer for starters. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much. I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm getting schooled right now, but I love it. Um, <laughs> that, that's the first time I've heard of the whole the inflammation piece uh, revolved mm. around, you know, in my, my breaking it down Barney style, I'm like, yeah, ibuprofen for the brain, which is yeah. kind of a oversimplification but yeah i i can definitely see that and i know from my own study of metabolism and things like that that we're we're learning more and more all the time how inflammation in different parts of the body you know has long-term effects and you know the nervous system is no 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 different right right um uh the other other piece of it too is this the whole psychological piece too which is super important to me we can't really talk about just the physiology of this without talking about the psychological aspect of it and even with people think thinking that psychedelic type of therapy will be will work is probably more inclined for it to work because of that mm-hmm. which quoting michael pollan's book I'm, I'm i love that you quoted his book cuz i really enjoyed reading it and kind of opened my mind to 
what's going on a lot with a lot of the stuff. He did such a great job as a non-science person to kind of break it down for the, the in layman terms. Um, mm-hmm. But that whole that whole piece of you know of that mindset and setting. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, what you're talking about the kind of breaking, bringing down those fear limits with, which I guess they call the default default mode network. Is that the, the, the right term for it? Yeah. That's sort of like the self-referential network that is, is online when we're just kind of daydreaming and wandering. It's very mm-hmm. like self-oriented. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, the parts of the brain that are involved in, in the emotional side of things. So like the amygdala, for example, is, is part of that. Right. Right which is, is huge. And the other aspect to it that really, especially caught my attention when I was in college was the, the, the creativity piece. And I kind of want to use this as a, as a segue to kind of talk about these things uh, from the neuroscience perspective for performance enhancers, I guess, uh, which is, is a, a huge piece of it too, and the kind of the direction it can go. Um, but like, you know, talking about neuroplasticity, like, you know, talking about that rut and kind of the, I guess the neurons making connections or, you know, around it and kind of, you know, using new pathways. Cause uh, I remember hearing about people like Carrie Mullis, who got the Nobel prize for, uh, polymerase chain, uh, reaction PCR, which is used now as like a huge part of medical science to replicate and copy and analyze DNA. And mm-hmm. the dude has openly spoke about like, I came up with the idea when I was on an acid trip, which yeah. is, which is a crazy thing for, you know, someone who's received a Nobel prize in, in science to, to, to say, to admit to, but yeah. I mean, there's, there's other, there's other really creative and successful people who've talked about these things as helping people become smarter or like problem solving, mm-hmm. uh, and things of that nature. So you know, I'm talking about neuroscience in, in order not just to help people's mental health, but, you know, as a human performance enhancer, um, you know, where do you think the the kind of the science may go? And I mean, we know people in Silicon Valley too have been quote unquote microdosing, right? Uh, mm-hmm. in, in that world for a lot. So where do you kind of think this will grow? And especially now is, I know there's a m- number of companies out that are just chomping at the bit for, um, you know, for the FDA to move certain things out of schedule one, so they can start to do more, I guess, um, you know, experimental type stuff with, you know, changing mm-hmm. molecules and, and, and using things for, you know, more than just therapeutic purposes. Um, where do you think it's going to go in the next 10, 20 years? That's a really good question. I mean, it's only going to continue to grow. That's for sure. We're going to understand so much more about all of this uh, through the more research as, as this yeah. area continues to explode. So I think it's going to be, uh, and I hope as long as things continue to move in a positive direction, and they will with organizations like MAPS at the helm at the forefront, leading um, some clinical trials and others at universities like John Ho- Johns Hopkins, who are kind of right there with them. Um, I think it's going to move in an overwhelmingly positive direction. Um, and with, with regard to performance, you're absolutely right. I mean, these, um, psychedelics ha- have that potential to really enhance creativity because they do remove those roadblocks and, um, the, the traditional, like narrow-minded focus that we have or narrow view that we have when approaching a problem. Now, all of a sudden it's like, we had maybe like a 30 degree window and now it's opened up and it's like, we have 180 degrees to, to right. look at the problem. Um, and so that really will enhance, uh, innovation for sure. Um, and I think it can be really powerful for that, but it's kind of, you know, one of the caveats to this is the, the, the sort of backdrop to all of it is that mental health is getting worse and worse Mm -hmm. in our nation. And I think across the globe, um, it's probably the worst it's ever been, (laughs) you know, just given everything that's going on right now. Um, but that is something that I think we should consider because, you know, when you think about doing psychedelics for creativity, um, it's, it is opening up our minds and enhancing, you know, the, the ways that we can look at and approach a problem, a problem set. But it's almost like if, you know, I, I wonder about this a lot, actually, because it's almost like we, we need to do psychedelics to overcome our default state, which right now is one of escape. You know, like you mentioned before, um, boredom is actually a really good thing because that can lead to creativity and imagination and innovation. Right. right? But how many of us can sit with boredom today? No one, (laughs) nobody, you know, we're escaping, we're escaping all the time. Mm. And so we're actually short. Yeah. I mean, we're short circuiting our own ability to be creative 
And then we try to overcompensate by taking psychedelics to promote creativity when we actually should be probably working less and having mm-hmm. less stress in our lives and mm-hmm. chilling, chilling out more um, and creating like the, the room, giving ourselves the room to be creative instead of um, forcing it. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm such a proponent of, of psychedelics and plant medicines and using it for creativity and performance. In addition to healing, I think all of that's great. But I would also tell people like, Hey, if you're taking psychedelics to increase creativity and, and performance in certain ways, what else are you doing in other aspects of your life to promote that too? And if you're just charging hard, addicted to everything, no downtime, and you just want to use this as a tool to uh, like, you like a cheat code in life to get to the next level or whatever, like, yeah. man, you know what, do you totally cool, do whatever you want. But it's, it's also um, again, like just trying to get people to look at their lives a little bit more instead of just being on autopilot. And I think we, we would have better, um, I think we would all have a, a much more creative uh, inspirations throughout the day if we did have a little bit more downtime and we weren't just yeah. trying to escape all the time. So that's my little asterisk to the whole performance side of things, but super powerful. I mean, yeah, very, very powerful for that. And I hope people do embrace that a little bit more in the future because it it can lead to uh, really really cool innovations. And I think it can also lead to cohesion in in groups of people that may not normally be willing to, um, you know, connect or work together. I think that psychedelics also have the power to bring people together in a powerful way to solve really big problems when you've got, you know, many people involved. So I think that that could be really cool too. Yeah. Um, Rick, Rick Doblin, the the founder of maps. I'm, I don't, have you ever ever got a chance to meet him? Not yet. No, unfortunately. Yeah. I've talked to him, but he's kind of, he's one of the all-stars, if not the all-star of this community right now from the, you know, from kind of, just putting in so much work from a scientific perspective to, to make all this stuff happen, to push the science. But I know they're, they're pushing for, I guess, some sort of clinical trial that last that I heard between uh, uh, people in the Middle East, uh, between Israel and Palestine for, you know, for basically trying to work through issues there, which is mm-hmm. mind blowing to think about, you know, two, two people from opposing sides in a war being able to sit, sit down two people in a room, them have some sort of psychedelic experience, and then they connect and focusing on what they have in common versus what they have different, which mm-hmm. sounds kind of woo woo. But I mean, the, the potential that's there to s- stop crazy, cr- crazy, which I don't want to say nonsensical, because I don't want to devalue either side of that argument on sure. what they think is important. But, you know, I don't, I think anybody out there who's, who has brothers or sisters, daughters or, or sons who've died in war would be like, yeah, if we can stop war, that'd be a great, great thing. Yeah. Um, and then the, the aspect that he, I've heard him say too, that he said, I, I think anybody who's a world leader should have to have a psychedelic experience before they have access to nuclear codes, yeah. which, yeah. which I love, <laughs> I love that quote so much because I just think if you, you know, if, if people were more cognizant, I guess, about this connectivity to what you, you know, basically dissolve the ego and realize what you really have access to and how, Mm -hmm. you know, take yourself out of the equation, I guess, a little bit. Um, The kind of a, I think is a a great way to to look at it from his perspective, but yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yes. I I appreciate it. I I think the, the, the neuroscience thing is, is, is so cool. And I'm, I'm on the outside looking in. So I appreciate people like you, Andrew Huberman, Rick Doblin, all these people who are doing great work in neuroscience to, to kind of push the boundaries and, and make it more accessible, the information to people like me to thus knuckle draggers, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love Huberman because he's able to take some really complex stuff and like teach it in a way that makes sense. Although he does stay very complex a lot of times. And so I try to, I definitely try to, um, I like to tell people that I speak scientist, knuckle dragger and hippie equally well. And I think that all of those, um, you know, just communicating with people in a way that um, makes sense to them is always, always like an important skill to have, but especially when it comes to this stuff, because it can be, super, super detailed and overwhelming. And yet it can also be really beautifully simple. And that's, yeah. um, I think that's the cool part about some of these psychedelics. Well, that, that's such a, a good bridge to my, to my questions. I like to ask all my guests on the podcast, because you saying that and communicating that way, I mean, that is a warrior monk solution, right? To like know your audience and be able to, to flip both sides of the coin and have that, that balanced ability to get into the nitty gritty of the science, as well as be able to 
make it, you know, communicate effectively and, and make it accessible to a lot of people. That's, that's totally what, you know, the mentality of this podcast and kind of my own personal philosophy is all about. But when you hear that term warrior monk, you know, who or what do you think of and how, how do you define it? Um, you know, the first thing that came to mind was that saying, and it's been attributed to, uh, I think most often to just a Chinese proverb, but it's um, better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in war. That's right. And that, that is the first thing that comes to mind where it's like, you know, having that, having those skills, the mental, physical, spiritual skill set to, uh, and, and recognizing your potential to annihilate somebody, for example, mm -hmm. as just an example. Um, but the wisdom to always choose a peaceful path, but knowing that you, you know, if you force to fight that you'll, you'll be good, you'll be okay. You know, but it's like having that wisdom to choose peace where it's like, it's like arming yourself with as much information as you possibly can. So you're dangerous, but the wisdom to know that that's not, the route, you know, that's not the first choice to any conflict or any uh, encounter. And so mm. it's like, it's really like deep wisdom is kind of what it comes to for me. So that's, that was sort of where my mind went with it when I thought of it. I don't know. Absolutely. That, no, yeah, it, okay. there's, there's no right or wrong answer. And I, I love hearing everyone's take on it because everyone always gives me a different answer. Although you were in the second person now to give me the, uh, the guard, the warrior in the garden quote. So, but okay, I, it, is, cool. it's, yeah. it is, it's a perfect analogy. It's definitely, You'd, you'd rather have the skills and not use them than, than, mm -hmm. <laughs> than need yeah. them and not have them. <laughs> exactly. Um, and the next question I always like to ask people uh, is who's influencing you right now? And that can be, you know, uh, someone in your personal life or someone you're following, someone you're reading, someone you're listening to. Um, gosh, there's a lot. I mean, sure. uh, I would say that um, a a big teacher for me right now is uh, the person that I've, I've worked with on my own plant medicine journeys down in Peru, um, who runs the retreat center that I go to. His name is uh, Chris, and he runs La Medicina in Peru. And that's um, a retreat center that Heroic Hearts Project uses. Mm -hmm. um, but he's been a really important teacher in my life, and especially lately since I was down there um, a few weeks ago. Um, he just is really able to cut through the bullshit and, and get right to the heart of you and the heart of what's going on. And, and that's something that I absolutely need in my life. I need people to be able to, um, to cut through that stuff and, and sort of, yeah, just go, go deep with, with comments sometimes or talking about, you know, something in particular that I'm not aware of. And, and it's really helpful the way that he approaches it. So that's like a very personal teacher, but as far as stuff that other people would be aware of, you know, Huberman is a person that I follow a lot. His podcasts are incredibly helpful. Uh, I also really like Lex Friedman is like, you know, yeah. people like Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman does like a really, really good podcast with a lot of similar guests to Rogan, but just a very mm -hmm. different approach to um, his interview style. I also really like the Daily Stoic podcast by Ryan Holiday. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah, that's great. That one's a, that one's a good one. Um, I also really like Mark Groves who does like relationship stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I really appreciate that perspective on not only just romantic relationships, but relationships, you know, that we have with ourselves and, and with family too. Um, and then uh, recently I read a book uh, called the comfort crisis by Michael Easter. It was really good. So I recommend that to people as kind of a um, something else to think about. And then if you're interested in psychedelics and you want to learn more um, there's the plant medicine podcast, which is excellent with Lynn Marie Morsky, um, and then uh, drug science podcast and psychedelics today are also really good. So those are some just random ones. Very cool. No, I appreciate you sharing. And this, this is part of how uh, I, I've said this multiple times in the podcast now, but I, I keep myself from being too controlled by the, the, uh, the social media algorithms, you know, cause it yeah. only feeds, feeds you so much. And yeah, it's an echo chamber. <laughs> it, it can be. And you, I, I would think all the time, you know, like, oh, I'm going to know who this person will list because I follow them or they follow me, et cetera. And I, end, I always end up getting something that's outside the algorithm. So uh, nice. it, it helps me from being too mind controlled by the little, the little box. Yeah, good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your, your busy schedule uh, to sure. talk to me and making yeah, the time to make this great. podcast happen. Um, you know, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, uh, Kate, to, to, to learn more about uh, psychedelics, about neuroscience, uh, where, where can they go to follow you? Where can they go to get more information? 
you know, I, there are two places I really spend a lot of time um, or more time, I guess, is uh, Instagram. And I'm on there as Doc Pate with a period between Doc and Pate. Um, on there a decent amount, although I've been taking breaks lately and that's been, <laughs> it's been good. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I'm on LinkedIn, um, Dr. Kate Pate on there. And I do spend some time on LinkedIn as well. Um, I don't, I have Facebook, but I don't really use it a lot. So it's usually not the best way to get in touch. Or if you just want to shoot me an email, if you have questions or want to reach out, you can go to Kate at docpate.com. Um, so super easy. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Like I said, for joining me, thanks for getting into the the nerdy stuff. I really enjoy yeah. it. Uh, this is a great way to close out this four part mini series that I've had on, on neuroscience and psychology. And, uh, uh, I honestly, I think I'm, I'm being biased here a, a little bit, but I think this is, well, I shouldn't say it's been the best one so far. I don't want to take any credit away from my <laughs> other guests, but they've, they've continually gotten better, uh, as, and, and I think that's partly for me getting, continuing to try to get better as an interviewer with these podcasts too, but I really enjoyed <laughs> this one. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. One more final thank you for Dr. Pate for joining me on the Wear Monk podcast. As she said, you can go and follow her on Instagram at doc.pate or send her an email at kate at docpate.com. If you're interested in learning more about what's going on with psychedelic medicine for post-traumatic stress and find out more information about neuroscience in general, follow her page. She's always putting out more interesting information and staying tightly knit to the first responder and law enforcement and veteran communities. Guys, if you haven't done so already, please go and check out the Warrior Monk podcast on Apple and on Audible and leave a review if you're so inclined to do so. We appreciate the feedback here at the podcast. And if you know someone who's a Warrior Monk, who's someone who is after the Warrior Monk mindset and lifestyle, they're all about growth through balance, please share this podcast with them or another episode of the podcast that you've listened to in the past. I appreciate you as a listener and your continued support and following with the podcast. We have more episodes in the bank coming out in coming weeks. So I appreciate your continued support and following along with us. And I hope to hear from you. Please shoot me a direct message or an email uh, through the Warrior Monk Instagram or Facebook or at warriormonkllc at gmail.com. Thank you so much, guys, and let's continue to grow through balance. Look out for more episodes from us in the near future.